2: dot com slash sacred text today to get ten percent off your first month. That's betterhelp h e-l p dot com slash sacred text. Hi, everyone.
1: It's Casper. This week, we've got a special edition of the show. It's our live show from Cambridge, Massachusetts, where we're reading chapter 18, which is Dumbledore's army through the theme of failure. You'll notice there's a couple times when people laugh because there's a visual joke that happens. And here and there, you'll notice some edits where we're making cuts just so it's easier for you to listen to. Next week, we'll read chapter 19, The Lion and the Serpent through the theme of distraction, and we'll be back to normal. I hope you enjoy. Dumbledore's army. Umbridge has been reading your mail, Harry. There's no other explanation. You think Umbridge attacked Hedwig, he asked, outraged. I'm almost certain of it, said Hermione grimly. What's your frog? It's escaping. I'm Casper Terkyle.
2: And I'm Vanessa Zoltan.
1: And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text,
2: The Hello. Live Show! <laughs> Hello, oh, wow. everyone. I should have asked you backstage, do I have anything?
1: I have the same thing. I think you're good.
2: Okay. We're used to working in audio. Yeah. (laughs) So you don't have these problems.
1: Welcome, Uh, everyone. We're so, so glad you're here. There's so many of you. Welcome. Um, Who here is from, like, Cambridge, Cambridge? Yes. Strong. Boston. Yes. Broader Massachusetts in-state area. Out-of-staters. Whoa! Is anyone from the state of Rhode Island? Woo! Did you know your state used to be called the theological sewer when it broke away from Massachusetts for its outright liberalism?
0: Casper, do you want to introduce us? Yes.
1: <laughs> I'm Casper.
0: I've been asked what she met them. Oh. You should do. Okay, so tonight
2: you always feel her presence in the episodes, but tonight you will pre- appreciate her more than ever when you hear us unedited, Ariana Nettleman. <laughs> and we are also incredibly lucky to be joined by the host of Here Be Monsters as our musician tonight, Jeff Entman. <laughs> You guys have no idea what a big deal that is. Or you you might. It's a really big deal.
1: And as our special guest, we have the wonderful Reverend Dr. Matt Potts with us. And you will hear from him later. Remember the grief episode where everyone just cried? That was Matt. Yeah. So... We're so glad you're here. Wherever you've traveled from, we know it's always an effort to make it to something like this. So we're so glad that you're here. Um, And for those of you who don't know the show very well, we always start with a little story to introduce our theme of the evening, which is failure. And so who better than Vanessa to tell that story?
2: The funny thing is, is that when they asked me to tell a story about failure, it did not even occur to me to tell a story about one of my own failures. I was like, got one. Not about me. But anyway, it is, my mom is here, and I'm going to be telling a story that is in part about her. Um, one of the, not, she is not a failure. <laughs> I am not that brave. Um, no, one of the, like, big sort of sad failed relationships that I've seen in my life is my my mom's relationship with her brother and sister, which is, like, no one's fault and is for all kinds of reasons, but it was always just sort of a stark thing in my life, because I am very close to my brothers. Like, growing up, we did everything together. (laughs) And we're still really close. Like, I talk to my brothers almost every day, and we travel together, and... um, which, you know, just put in perspective the stories that I heard about my mom's childhood were like, she shot a water gun at one of her older brother's friends when she was nine, and my uncle's still mad. But, like, really, he's 75 and he's still mad. Whereas my brothers, I, like, I've done worse things to them today, and they're, like, over <laughs> it. And it wasn't, my brothers and I did not have a perfect relationship. Like, for example, my brother David... Um, my my partner, Peter, and I went to visit my family, and we hung out with David, and then we got into the car afterwards, and Peter looked at me and said, David is the good-looking one in the family, and I went, I didn't ask, okay, okay, and like, he's not the only one who thinks that, like, I was online dating, and I had a picture up of my brothers and I, and somebody messaged me being like, oh, your brothers are really cute, and I wrote back, like, ha-ha, like, do you have any siblings? And I never heard from them again. (laughs) Like, they just wrote to me to tell me how cute my brothers are. And they are. They're very cute. And my younger brother, too. He's one of those people who, like, effortlessly, like, wins things. Like, I'm a spiller and a dropper. And Jonathan... Jonathan and David call me one Friday night, and they're like, hey, like, Shabbat Shalom. And I was like, why are you guys together? And they were like, oh, we're going to a poker tournament, like a charity poker tournament. I was like, do you guys know how to play poker? And they were like, no. And I was like, okay, good luck. It's for a good cause. And they call me after, and they're like, we came in first and second place. I
3: don't,
2: <laughs> I don't know. But so, wait, but before you feel bad for me, like, I was good at things, too, as a kid. I, I was an excellent pastel drawer. Did you know that? This is a drawing that I did of our pet dog when I was eight years old. The dog wasn't smiling in real life. I added that touch. (laughs) But, and here is a painting that my handsome brother David did when he was 35 of my parents' dog. (laughs) We call it Daff at Play.
1: It's really bad.
2: (laughs) So for those of you listening at home, Daphne is a four-legged dog. The painting is of a one-legged dog. Um, you know, we all have our talents. Anyway, but this was, I swear this, this is about my mom and her siblings. (laughs) So, um... Things got tenser between my mom and her siblings as my grandfather was aging and um, getting closer to the end of his life. And my grandpa had a a habit of giving everything away. You would, like, sit on a chair and he'd say, like, oh, are you comfortable? And you'd say, yes, thank you. And he'd say, do you want to take the chair? And you were like, I was just saying I was comfortable. (laughs) But things were disappearing from his house so much that my mom and her siblings agreed, like, none of us are going to take anything from Papa's house until after he's passed away. And we'll, we'll figure out what to do with the stuff then. And my mom, my mom was his like main caretaker toward the end of his life, and so she was there almost every day. And she went to visit him one day, and a painting was missing um, from the wall in his bedroom, and it was very easy to tell because my grandfather had. I wonder if any of you had Eastern European Jewish grandparents, but there's a talent. Woo! There's a talent of hanging as many paintings on a wall that is cubically possible. <laughs> and so if one goes missing, it's very obvious. Because you're like, I didn't know there was wallpaper on that wall, <laughs> like in that moment. And this really weighed on my mom because like day after day she would go and there was this like empty, you know, wall. And she called her sister and said, can, can you bring the painting back? Like we agreed. My aunt said no. And it was just really, it was, it was difficult for my mom. And one day perfect David texts me and says, "Re-missing painting. Solved it." And I was like, "What'd you do?" You like showed up at our aunt's house with like your shiny halo and your like box of chocolates and your flowers and you somehow convinced her to like return the painting. And he wrote back, "Nope. Better." And sent this photo. <laughs> and again, for those of you who listening at home, he decided to make a very generous donation of the great piece of art DAF at play
1: <laughs>
2: to my grandfather's wall. And the amazing thing about this to me was that it worked. And again, you can ask my mom after the show, but I really do think it worked. It charmed her, it delighted her that her son had a sense of humor about his own failures and and that she had raised children you know, who could delight in these things even when she had such a difficult relationship with her brother and sister. And so I'm interested in talking to you about that tonight. Casper, because I think that we see Hermione take a real failure with SPW and turn it into a success with Dumbledore's army. And I think we see a lot of failures that get changed into successes in this chapter. So that is my story. And you can go to Harry Potter Sacred Text slash play dot com in order to see this if you're listening.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, David. <laughs>
1: It is a remarkable piece of art. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that, that sometimes making the thing that we thought was a failure really visible and putting it in a different context where it can live as something that's joyful and life-giving. Yeah, um, yeah I look forward to digging into the text.
0: Before you do that, though, Ooh. are you ta- ready to fail at a
2: 30-second recap? Hey! <laughs> Sorry, it came to me the last no, minute. I had to. It's perfect. <laughs> are you ready? I'm ready. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. Okay. Vanessa, you want to count them in? Yeah, I'll count you in. Okay. On your mark, get set. Go.
1: So charms apparently is the perfect time to like debrief difficult conversation. Um, then there's a Quidditch practice where there's lots of rain, and so like, ah, we can't see anything. And then they impervious their own faces, which apparently works really well to keep the rain off. Um, and then um, um, he's falling asleep because he's doing potions homework, and Dobby's like, hey, I'm here. Let me tell you about the room of requirement. And then they go uh, and practice um, the first DA session, which uh, is named by a triptych of wonderful women. And that's all I got for you. You know, I just, I left you some things to cover. No,
2: but that was really solid. I'm very proud of you. Yeah.
1: Um, I'll count you in.
2: Okay. Three,
1: two, one, go.
2: We get to see Ron play Quidditch, which is very exciting. We get um, um, Harry's scar. Hurts, and he get we see inside Voldemort's brain, or do we? Is Voldemort trying to manipulate Harry? We don't know. And then, um, yeah, uh, Dobby finds out about the tells Harry about the Room of Requirement, and Hermione is like, I don't trust Dobby, but then she's like, Oh, Dumbledore said so. Okay. And then so they use the Room of Requirement, and Cho tries to flirt with Harry, but everyone is always getting in their way. And um, it turns out that Harry's a pretty good teacher, which is very
0: exciting. That
1: was.
0: I feel like, oh. feel like both were pretty good. Is there anything that you know that you missed yes. in this chapter?
1: <clears throat> There's one random thing, which I learned reading it literally in preparation for tonight, is that at break times, they mandatorily have to go outside. Right. Did anyone else notice that? Yeah. That because it was such awful weather, they were allowed to stay in. I'm like, these people are 16 now. Like, surely that's okay.
2: Yeah um dobby we know is collecting all of the hats oh. and um no nobody else wants them and like sometimes winky wears one but we're not sure about whether or not she yeah. wants it yeah yeah so how self sad how self sad fred and george's boils. Yes, fred, fred and, and george's boils
1: really oh and they some of them rupture and some <laughs> of them don't um on the broomsticks yeah it's pretty awkward <laughs> it's very visual language i found yes Angelina just wants to have Quidditch practice. Yes.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, Winky is, like, drinking too much and, like, spends time in the room of Requirement sobering up. Yeah.
0: Zachariah Smith oh. is... And, yeah. I feel for him. <laughs> this is something I, I
2: was saying backstage earlier. I feel like in history, I, I will have been on the right side of history, but been, like, the grouch about it. Nah. <laughs> and been, like, are we sure this is the right thing? I feel like I am Zachariah Smith. Yeah. I'm gonna make a button. Nice. I am <laughs> <And> Zachari-
1: Zachari-
2: <laughs> Like, I don't know, he's, like...
1: It's, like, the chosen one and then the grouchy one. <laughs> <Yeah. Like.
0: laughs> hey! Before we move on to the theme conversation, um, we had a prompt up on the screen that asked who you would date, and I wanted to report back that Ginny was the overall winner. <laughs> But also, we got this great tweet from Noelle who said, there's the person I'd want to date, and then there's who I'd actually have dated in high school, which is Ernie McMillan. (laughs) 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 I like Ernie. Forgettable.
1: (laughs) That's what you are.
0: Ernie. I I love him. (laughs) Okay, Casper, Vanessa, it is time for our theme conversation. Good. And I have a question for you which is that in this chapter, we learn, as you mentioned, that Dobby has been solo cleaning the Gryffindor Tower and taking all of Hermione's hats. And therefore, we kind of de facto learn that Hermione's spew campaign with the knitting of hats is a failure. And also, we learn that Harry doesn't tell Hermione this. He gets this information and decides to keep it to himself. And so my question is, what do you make of Hermione's failure here? Kind of what you mentioned, how does it inform her in the DA? And also should Harry have told her? Or are there some failures we shouldn't tell people about? So, yes, there are some
2: failures that you shouldn't tell people about. Like, don't tell me if I have food in my teeth now. It's too late. (laughs) Like, there's nothing I can do. But I do think that it's a missed opportunity that Harry doesn't talk about this with Hermione for a few reasons. One, this isn't just a failure. Like, Hermione is not just failing at being a good advocate for house elves. She's made Dobby's life harder, Dobby is now a victim of Hermione's good intentions, and I think that Dobby deserves to be protected from Harry the way that Dobby would definitely protect Harry. And I also think that it's a missed opportunity because Harry and Hermione are, like, starting a movement together, and they are going to have to have tough conversations. I don't think Harry should say it glibly. I don't think that Harry should take it lightly, but I think he should set her down and let her know that this, this tactic is not working.
1: Yeah, it's always so complex to think about because on the one hand, externally, yeah, total failure, right? No other house elves are freed. They don't even want to be freed. No one else has joined SPW. You Except
2: know. Neville, who, like, joins out of pity, which, like, you got to... If Neville is
1: pitying you. Yeah. Right.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's like you're in a bad place, Hermione. <laughs> right. But so externally she has failed, but I feel
1: like in the way in which she's leading the DA, right, she asks everyone to have a vote, like who's going to be our leader, and she makes everyone write down their names in the previous chapter so that, you know, we know who would have told on them, et cetera. So she's learned a lot of skills. So I feel like internally she's built a lot of leadership capacity, but at what cost? You know, how much do you let people fail in order to learn? Because I feel like Hermione really has learned from this experience.
2: Yes, but then why isn't she changing her tactics within SPEW? Has Hermione spent time other than that once in the kitchens talking to house elves? Right? Like, the lessons that she has learned, she's implementing. She is out there talking to people about all of the different reasons that they should join what will soon be called in this chapter the DA, right? It's like, well, if you're going to fail your OWLs, you're not going to be able to protect yourself, right? Like, she has a multi-layered pitch, like, with slides, with pictures of her brothers to, like, make a great, (laughs) like, argument for it. Like, why isn't she changing her tactic within SPEW?
1: Maybe Hermione is a Quaker. Definitely that. (laughs) Well, I'm just thinking about, like, that tradition of witness, right? Like, some things are just, whether they're impossible to change or whether they're too big for your small group or whatever, and so the best you can do is just stand there and say, this is wrong. And so maybe every, like, knitted hat is just a sign to say, like, this is wrong, but I don't know what else to do.
2: Except that Dobby is now cleaning it alone! (laughs) Yeah, I feel very strongly that there is, like, a very specific victim... To this and therefore Harry's just being a coward. I, don't, I also think that choosing to confront someone or not confront someone about their failure, you can test it as to whether or not you choose to confront them based on your comfort or on the impact that it will have. And I think that Harry most likely doesn't do it because it would make him really uncomfortable to do it and not because he thinks that this is fine. He also just doesn't care enough about Dobby.
0: Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of um glided over something which I think is important, which that you seem to think that Hermione's tactics in the DA are successful. And can you talk a little bit more about like what you see her doing, yeah, Casper, and, and why you think they are successful? And and maybe how she learned those things from SBEW, which is what you said.
1: Well, I really love the way in which she's kind of demonstrating distributed leadership, right? She's not coming in and saying, like, this is how it's going to be done she's certainly influencing which I think is important but she's not like creating complete barriers and so the fact that she invites people to help name it the fact that she you know lets Harry decide like what what are we going to teach right he is the expert on defense against the dark arts so I, I, I feel like she's inviting other people into leadership rather than going all out herself and saying like I've got pins now give me money you know what I mean?
2: I think that that's absolutely right and um, the moment where she's like I nominate Harry is a little icky to me just because she's the brains behind it and is like man take the power and I'm like "Mm." but I think for all sorts of reasons it's a good thing to do and I think that if nothing else the lesson she learned from SPEW is that whatever she's doing nobody else showed up so she might think that she's influencing house elves but which do you know maybe now I've answered my own question the reason the reason she doesn't change things within SPEW again is because Harry doesn't give her the feedback that her tactics are failing right she thinks that she's like out there freeing all these house elves and it's like I don't need a lot of members to do that but for the DA we do need a lot of members
1: also a great uh, indication of like the importance of feedback loops right like you can be doing the same thing knitting the hats and if they disappear you're telling yourself the story like oh what I'm doing really works but this is why data collection matters everyone (laughs) Take that home.
2: Well, but and correct data analysis. Yes. Because she's collecting data. (laughs) Like she's knitting hats. Right. And hats are disappearing. And she's just learning the totally wrong lesson, which is: I guess I should knit more hats.
1: Which is why she's not in Ravenclaw and she is in Gryffindor. (laughs) I think it's settled.
0: She is making one house self very happy. She. Yeah. He's now yeah. cleaning Gryffindor ha, com- like common room alone. How happy is he? The he exception likes his proves the rule. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there somewhere else in this chapter that you see failure?
2: Yeah, Casper and I disagree about Quidditch practice.
0: Well. <laughs> no, let's fight.
2: I can't
1: remember which side <laughs> I agree with.
2: <laughs> so let's I set think it Angelina up. Davis runs a successful Quidditch practice. So, I think An- she doesn't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Angelina Johnson. Johnson. Uh, yeah. Why did I Why did I call her by the Who was I thinking?
0: Never mind. Angela Davis. I was talking Angela to Angela Davis. <laughs> That's yeah. what I did. I, yes.
1: She says <laughs> she's amazing.
0: So I just <laughs> Angelina Johnson with decides else. to have quidditch practice yeah. in the pouring rain. Yeah. And you think that it is wrong. No, I
2: think it's a successful that, that quidditch success. practice. Okay,
0: why? I So I think s- organized sports
2: that aren't just done for, like, fun on a Saturday are stupid. But within the logic of organized sports, I think if you are going to try to run a great, strong team and victory matters to you, then I think that you have to practice within the conditions that a game would be run. And they would still have this game, so they should still have this practice. And just because Fred and George have a failed product that they haven't figured out how to, like heal their butts. Like, that doesn't mean that she has made a mistake. She's running a hard practice. I think Oliver Wood would run the same practice. And, um, yeah. I just, like, I'd practice
1: with Oliver Wood any day. But, like,
2: I just think that she's being held to a caretaking standard because she's a woman, and, like, this is the right thing to do, given the sport that they have chosen to play. Casper? Yeah.
1: Well... The fact that they do not return to the Quidditch pitch, that she cancels the next practice, to me says that she knows it was a failure. That she was like, no one could see each other. It was raining so hard. Like, nothing made sense. Everyone just felt worse afterwards. I think I need to be more inventive. It's like if you're a, like, a, um, oh gosh, what's that na- Dutch national sport where are you ice skating? Um, like, long distance ice skating. Um, you know, if, it's no, if there's no ice... Like, don't go on the water. And I I feel like Angelina needs to think of what's the, like, roller skating equivalent of training for different weather conditions.
2: But Quidditch games happen in those conditions, whereas ice skating doesn't happen when lakes are swimmable.
1: That is correct. (laughs) I stand down.
2: No, I... I... Well, I'm going to keep going anyway because I have one more point. Um, and I don't think that not repeating something means that you thought it was a mistake or a failure. Okay. I think it's we've learned how hard it is. We've learned as much as we can. There's no reason for me to – right? Like there's, um, there's like a return on investment of like, okay, and now I'm just exposing them to freezing cold for no reason. And I think it's actually a great leader who's like, okay, that was just hard enough and now I'm going to stop. That's not an admission of failure. That's like a wisdom of balance.
1: Because this is a new team, right? Ron has joined. I suddenly had a brainwave, which is that the DA is actually also Quidditch practice, right? Because have we got the whole Quidditch team there at the DA? Like nearly everyone? I think everyone is there. Yeah. And so this is totally like a team building moment. Sure. That helps. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that she has innovated. In her, like, leadership style.
2: And I'm just saying that we hold women to different standards of men's comfort than we hold men to. I
1: can't argue with that.
2: Yeah. (laughs) And that it's not a failure. Like, she's a tough captain and good. That's all. Thank you. That's all I got on that. Thank you. And Quidditch is stupid. (laughs)
0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
2: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to old Place, so you need to find a new home. Redfin, it's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started.
0: I believe it's time for a spiritual practice. Ooh. <sighs> <laughs> so we
2: are going to start with the spiritual practice of Pardase, which is Casper's favorite. Um, we actually agreed today, I'm so sorry I did this, that that joke's not funny anymore, and we should stop. So that was the last time. Bye, joke. Um, so um, Pardes is a four-step reading practice that is based in medieval Judaism. Um, Pardes is an acronym for Pshat, Remez, Drash, and Sod. And the idea is that you know a text is as diverse as an orchard and that you can just put your hand up Um, anywhere in an orchard and grab a piece of fruit and it will be juicy and nutritious and we can do the same thing with the Harry Potter books. We can pull any quote from this chapter. So can somebody please give me a number between 374 and 396? I heard 381. So there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven paragraphs on this page. Can you please give me a number one through seven? Seven, great. So the sentence that we will be doing is, Harry was thinking himself back. You would have said that no matter what I said. (laughs)
3: That's good. That's good. Okay, so
2: page 381 Harry was thinking himself back. So the first step of Pardes is pshat. And in pshat, we ask ourselves, what is the intended or the explicit meaning of the text? Did you find it?
1: This is when he and Ron are talking. So
2: this is, yeah. He and Ron are talking after Quidditch practice, and um, Harry is telling Ron about the visions of Voldemort that he's had, that is Garhart, and he's sort of figuring out out loud what Voldemort has been experiencing,
1: harry was thinking himself back he's trying to remember what it felt like in previous times when he felt voldemort's presence because this he suddenly explained like voldemort is angry and he only knew it as he said it which i thought was such an interesting moment and he's now remembering the other times when he's he's able to sense voldemort's feelings without any rational explanation of how he knows is that right
2: yes i like it's really fun are you sure you don't want to try (laughs) Okay. So step two of our days is remez. And remez is one of my favorite things that we do in the podcast. So we pick a word from the sentence. It means like an allegorical meaning or a possibly metaphorical meaning. But the way that we do it is the way that rabbis have been doing this for hundreds of years, which is that you can pick one word and track how that word is used throughout the Harry Potter series. So if we were doing this with the Torah and we picked the word tree, we'd be like, ooh, where are all the trees in the Torah? And we would talk about all the different times that we see trees and all the different meanings that trees can have. And so I need your help. I am going to say the very tall person with glasses. Yes, you. I want you to pick one of these words. Harry was thinking himself back. Uh, Back. Back. Okay. So where else does the word back come up in the Harry Potter books? I'm thinking immediately of the back... Of Quirrell's head. Where else? Back to the burrow. Back to the burrow, Tighten, yes. Yeah. Ten points, Slither. The time turner. We go back in time, okay? Voldemort, Voldemort is back. more is back. back. Womp want, want. He brings Cedric back, which I still think is like the bravest, best thing. Okay. He. Sorry? The Pensieve, you can go back in time in other people's memories,
1: yeah. Thestrals. The Thestrals.
2: Thestrals, how, how, ex- oh, they ride on the backs of the Thestrals. I was like, I, I'm sure that's great. No, but it actually was, thank you. Um, and Buckbeak's back, right? Like, they ride on the backs of a lot of things, yeah.
1: I also thought of going back to Hogwarts. Hogwarts. Yeah. <laughs> That's non-textual, so strike that from the record.
2: Um, That's not canon. Yeah, not canon. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Hedwig is brought back by Dobby in this very chapter, that's right.
2: I met Hedwig, I met her. I was in Oregon and I went to a bird conservatory and there was a snowy white owl and it looked like Hedwig and my theory now is that she's alive and she ran away from Harry. She's okay, she's in Oregon, she's so happy. (laughs)
1: Here's the thing. The owl actually had a name, and it was Hermes. Hermes.
2: Isn't It's crazy? Hermes,
1: not Hedwig. Nobody
2: was... I think that Hedwig took Hermes's name. Oh, undercover, undercover Hedwig. Undercover. Scared that Harry might find her. And I was like, oh my God, it's Hedwig. And she was like, hmm. I'm just saying, guys, she's fine. She's in Eugene. Go see her. So what are these other Sorry. instances of the oh, word Oh, yeah. Back? I was doing something. Um, back. Okay, so... Bringing somebody back, going back. I think that going back is one of those things that is hard, right? Writing on the back of a Thestral is hard. Going back somewhere is hard. Returning is always hard, right? Like on the Journey Quest narrative, mm-hmm. the return, going back, is like considered the hardest part, coming back home.
1: Well, and often the place that you're returning to might not have changed, but you're the one who's changed. Right. And I'm thinking of Harry at the very end of the books, of course, also coming back, and he's... Voldemort is gone from his own body, from his own experience. And so whatever journey we've gone on, it has changed us. And that is it T.S. Eliot to see a place as if for the first time?
2: But how does that change our reading of this sentence? He was thinking himself back. It's like, this is hard for him, right? This is like a brave thing that he's willing... Sorry, you have something to say, please. That was it. That was all I got.
1: It's only that... um, It's literally happening here, right? He's returning to those memories of what did I feel when I knew Voldemort was feeling something, and he's suddenly having the clarity of understanding, oh, he was angry, oh, he was happy. He's literally returning to memories and seeing them with with the new information he's had from the journey that he's been on,
2: yeah, so. and part of the reason that he's able to do that right now is because he's standing there with one of his best friends, having just gone through a difficult Quidditch practice together, right? Like there's a vulnerability of shared experience that Angelina created for them. Um, <laughs> so, anyway, anything else about how else the word "back"? I feel like there's the more. He was thinking himself back. I think we at least I, give Harry a hard time. And he he does this to himself, too, where he's like, every time that I've successfully beat Voldemort, I've been lucky. Like, you know, um, Phoenix have appeared with magical swords that, like, have helped. But maybe his real bravery is in his willingness to go back. Mm. Right? Like, he does. He goes back to the Dursleys again and again. He waits in order to bring Cedric back. He's willing to think back into this horrible feeling of a scar, you know. And going back, I think, is just the bravest thing because you know how hard it is and you know how much it hurts, right? It, it isn't brave if you weren't scared. He has enough information to be scared, and he keeps going back. So maybe his genius isn't in his ability to fight Voldemort, but it's in his willingness to go back.
1: That's where That's, it is.
2: Thank you, yes. all of you, for a Okay, so we're now going to move... <laughs> And the next step of our days is Drash. And with Drash, we ask ourselves, if this was the the piece of liturgy that you were handed on a Friday night or on a Sunday morning, and you had to preach your sermon based on this piece of liturgy, what sermon would you give? Especially informed by the conversation that we've had so far. Harry was thinking himself back.
1: I think it strikes me that he's thinking himself back. And I know I'm guilty of like, living in the future a lot of the time. And so sometimes thinking about the thing that's going to happen is so much harder than the actual thing when you do it. Um, and so I don't want to say it's easier to fight Voldemort than you think it is, <laughs> because, because that would not be true. Um, but there is, there is something about like, catastrophizing. If we're spending so much time worrying about it, like, just do it. Yeah. It won't be as bad as you think it
2: is. How yeah. About you? No. Um I was thinking about how hard I always think going home is for me. Like, hey, I'm a different person <laughs> now. Cousins, you don't know me anymore. And it never occurs to me that they've also changed. <laughs> um and l- uh, that needs to be part of my narrative too. It's not just hard for me, right? Yeah. Like I go off and I do things and I come back and they are humans and they are different too and just because they've stayed in the same houses doesn't mean that they are unchanged and so I need to go back with a more open mind.
1: Does anyone, is anyone a parent with kids who've like left home and now come back from time to time? I'm just thinking for the first time, is it hard when they return?
0: (laughs)
2: Mary over here is (laughs)
0: like, yes. Yes. (laughs)
2: Mom and dad, no, it's always a pleasure, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I genuinely had never thought about that. Yeah. My poor parents.
2: <laughs> so step four of Pardes, the S is for sewed, and sewed means secret. And the idea is that texts hold secrets for us, and that if we give ourselves just a moment to contemplate it, it is possible that the secret will emerge and that we will be able to grasp it. And it is by far the most mystical practice that we practice on the podcast, or that I practice in my life, I think, at this point. Except that I do believe my dog and I can read each other's thoughts. But <laughs> other than that, it's sewed. And um, Casper and I got to do sort of a, a dream come true thing, which was do a live show in London with, with Stephanie, our mentor. And backstage, Stephanie and I were chatting, and I was like, oh, Stephanie's like the most supportive person. And I was like, Stephanie, I, I, I don't think we're great at sewed yet. And she went, oh, you're not. <laughs> and I was like... Okay, so um, we now set the expectation of not a sewed, but a suh. Like, we won't hear the whole secret, but we'll, like, see the secret waving at us. So I'm just doing some expectations management here. <laughs> um, so I will read us the sentence once more, and then we will just sit with some quiet and some beautiful music under us, and then we will see if a suh emerges. And
1: sometimes it doesn't arrive on stage, but out there. Yes. So afterwards you'll have to tell us if you found one.
2: Yes. Okay. Harry was thinking himself back. Harry was thinking himself back.
1: And we've talked about Hermione and SPW. I feel like we can look back by ourselves, but we can only look forward together. Like there's something about, like I look back on my life and it's my memory, but whatever future is going to be built is going to be built with other people. I'm just thinking about this as such a key book in Harry's struggle of being like an isolated individual who fights Voldemort. And this chapter is the moment when the DA is really formed. It's such a pivotal moment when he's no longer alone. And so, yeah, that's my...
2: <laughs> and I, I, what I also love about that is that that is a lesson that Harry is going to have to learn again and again. <laughs> he learns it here, but then he forgets it and has to learn it again. Right, and Hermione in book seven will be like, Of course, we're coming with you, you dodo brain. That's yeah. an exact quote. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: did any says.
2: Can I hear emer- one?
0: No. Okay.
2: Anyone out here?
0: <laughs> of course. Um, it's also just a uh, but something in thinking about Harry trying to live himself into Voldemort made me think about Voldemort trying to live himself into Harry. And like something about that image of just like picturing Voldemort sitting there, like trying to think himself back and like finding Harry's love for Sirius and like all of the ways that eventually inform, you know, how he acts was like felt like a secret to me. Yeah. And what that makes me think of
2: is um, the difference between Harry and Voldemort is that Voldemort is constantly trying to instrumentalize that information, right? Mm-hmm. He's like constantly using information to dehumanize and to subjugate. Whereas Harry, even at this point, is trying to use that information to understand, mm-hmm. not to overpower, right? And that that's the difference. That's and I'm just riffing off of all of yours because not even Esa emerged to me. Thank you so much for engaging in that spiritual practice with Thank us. Thank you, everyone.
1: Can I just ask, does anyone do some of the reading practices at home? Or I know some people use it in a classroom. That's amazing.
2: Um, The Reverend Dr. Matthew Potts is an Episcopal priest at St. Barnabas Church in Falmouth, Massachusetts. He is an associate professor at Harvard Divinity School. I can't tell if the thing he's proudest of most in the world is that he has taught all of us or his three beautiful children, (laughs) probably the kids. Happy husband to Colette, dog owner to Suki. My dog is Rory and his dog is Suki and Gilmore Girls friends. Yeah. Okay, I'm just saying. Matt, would you like to come up and tell us a story about failure? You calling me short? No, I'm not. Should I take it off?
3: Okay. Okay. Uh, so, I yes, I was the teacher of, of these uh, folks, and I also went to school here in Cambridge. I went to, to Harvard for graduate school, much like these folks. Um, and I found when I arrived at, at Harvard that I had something in common with a lot of my classmates and my colleagues. Uh, I was a nerd like them, uh, and I liked to spend my time reading, and I had trouble in social situations. Uh, but the other thing that I discovered really quickly is that I cared about religion, but mostly that I wanted religion to have some kind of impact in the world. And to put that slightly differently, with my cohort of colleagues, I was frustrated that with the, re- the relationship that religion had in the world, with the failure to actually speak meaningfully to the world as it was. And so early in my doctoral program, um, some of my colleagues and I decided that we were the future of religious thought and practice and so that we we needed to, right? We were right, we were right. So we needed to do something about it. And so we decided to have this conference and invite other Doctoral students of theology to come to Boston and have a conference where we would talk about how to make religious thought make it actually speak to the real needs of the world and in the world. And so we did. We we um, got this big church, a cathedral downtown, to open its basement to us, and we invited um, people from schools around the Northeast. We invited people from um, from New York City, from Columbia, and from New Haven, from Yale, uh, to come join us for a day long conference and conversation. And the whole topic was let's let's make a difference. Let's not just stay in our rooms studying our books. Let's actually try to make what we talk about and think about matter to the lives of, of real people. And so it was on a cold day, much like today uh, in January, and we Harvard folks were hosting. So we, we got to this church basement uh, very early in the morning, like 7.30 or 8 a.m., and we showed up you know, with a bunch of stuff, and we started setting out tables And setting out all the chairs. It was in the basement. Setting out tables and chairs. And um, somebody made a run to Dunkin' Donuts and brought a bunch of donuts and bagels. And somebody got, like, some fruit trays from from Stop and Shop. And we were setting out food, right? And then we were, you know, all the things you would do for a conference. Putting out the folders and putting out the agendas and getting name tags written and getting everything all set. And everything was all ready to go. And it was just about the time for it to start. And so, you know, I looked at the the space and it was fine. And I I went up the stairs up to the office to, to check in and just make sure that everything was fine. And I was going up the stairs towards the office, and as I was going upstairs toward the office, a man was coming down the stairs, uh, and he had a jacket that was too light for the cold day, and he was carrying a little plastic bag, and I, he, you know, we met each other on the stairwell, uh, and he said to me, he said, I, I actually just arrived, I'm, I'm from out of town, I just arrived at South Station, and somebody told me that, that there's a church somewhere around here that serves a meal on Saturday mornings, and just because of my own past, I've worked with a lot of homeless people in the past and spent a lot of time working with homeless people. And I could tell that he was probably homeless. Um, and so I said, well, you know what? Let's come upstairs. We'll, we'll find a place. And we, we went upstairs and went to the office. And I got um, the, somebody who was on staff working there that day. And we, um, we made some phone calls. And we got a map. And we got everything arranged. And we figured out the place where he should be going. Um, and you know, we gave him directions. And I shook his hand and wished him well and sent him off. Uh, And then he walked out the door and out into the cold January day And I turned to this guy who helped me out and I thanked him and I started walking back downstairs patting myself on the back for Speaking to the real needs of the world at this conference where I should be speaking to the real needs of the world And I started coming back down those stairs Coming back. I was listening while you're doing this thing. I started coming back down those stairs and about halfway down the stairs I Had the view that this man had had over my shoulder and I looked at this room that was set with bagels and donuts and fruit trays and hot coffee and hot tea. And I realized that while I was sending this man away, he was looking over at this veritable feast of food that was right in front of him. And what I realized in that moment, right, is not that my failure was not that I had I had failed to see the need in the world, is that I had failed to stand in his shoes and see what he could see and help him. So that's my story of failure.
2: That's a beautiful story. I I would say your failure was different. (laughs) (laughs) No, I would say, right, it was a, I think sometimes we fail to see the gifts that we have, right? I think that this is the kind of failure that I would like to think that we forgive ourselves for. And I think it's an invitation to stand in someone's shoes more often. But your back doesn't have eyes, and um, we often forget the gifts that we have to offer the world. And that if we're not honest about the gifts that we have to offer, that is a failure. Right? It's a failure to offer our gifts. That's just my thought. Sorry.
1: I'm. I'm remembering. I grew up in a village, which was rather unusual. I went to a Waldorf school, Steiner school. Anyone? Yeah, you're with me. (laughs) Um, And there were two kind of big farms there. And a lot of people with developmental disabilities lived and worked on the farm. And obviously, the people around the farm were amazing caregivers and like, but also needed like a day off. And so on Wednesday evenings, friends of these farmers would like have everyone for dinner And I was like 13, 14 at this point. And so every Wednesday we had like five or six guests with us, which obviously was like very different from a usual like dinner guest situation. And I remember I was so resentful. Like I was so resentful that it was our family who who hosted these wonderful friends. And so what I'm thinking of in your story is that like that was the easy thing to do, right? And it was important and it was good. And, but when, when it's a real gift is when it costs us something. Mm-hmm. And, and this meal hadn't been prepared for, for this particular person yep. who walked in, but we had it to give. And so I'm just, I'm just thinking about that relationship between gifts that we can give and the, and the actual cost that it have. And that it, that it, I don't know, something in me says like it really counts when it costs us something.
0: I'm also thinking about, when I read this chapter, I read it out loud with Jeff and our roommate, and we said, oh, there are no Slytherins who are part of the DA. And I was like, oh, well, Hermione probably didn't invite any Slytherins. Um, And I was thinking about, like, what in this chapter is relevant, like, what would have been a sacrifice? And it made me think of that, that, like that would have been a sacrifice for Harry and for everyone there to have Slytherins there, but it would have actually been the thing that would have made the DA stronger than ever. Like, yes. But?
2: But, no, I, like, the great failure um, from, like, the Hogwarts point of view to me comes in book seven when McGonagall says, like, Slytherins, get out, right? Like, it's awful. And I'm worried about grappling with that. But, but, um, but those things come at a risk, and so, of course, in a perfect world, you would have invited this person down. And in a perfect world, Slytherins would be invited. But like, trying to make a good impression, and Slytherins could tell Umbridge, and but Marietta tells Umbridge. You know, it happens anyway. It happens anyway. I'm not. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that these failures aren't failures. I'm saying that I think it's, again, I think it's important to forgive ourselves for our failures because our reasons for these mistakes are valid. Like, these concerns are valid, right? Like, I don't know. We all make them. Say something wise. I mean, I I
3: I think that... I think part of what was interesting for for me is I, in the moment I was so confident that I was doing the right thing. That's yeah. part of the, the twist. And also just that like
2: And I'm sure Hermione is too. I'm sure Hermione's right. like, I'm inviting everybody. I can't trust the yeah. Slytherins. There's too much at risk for Harry. And
3: and also for me though, like there was actually like a considerable amount of training that had had prepared me to act exactly the way I acted. Because I've worked in churches that yeah. deal with homeless people. Right. And so like the, I was doing, okay, this is the way you do it. And that and that was it was something about the failure was almost built into the way I was set up to encounter the situation. Does that make sense? Right. So I, yeah. yeah, there's a sense in which, as you say it, it it's just something that kind of happened before I even realized it. But that's sort of the point, right? Right. Yeah.
2: Well, and the failure here is sorting. Yeah. Like these assessments should be done on a person-to-person basis, and have I built enough trust with you? And the failure is that they quarter kids every year at the age of 11. <laughs> right. It was some. It's something that we're told is like a bad thing to do is to judge a kid at the age of 11 and fate their entire lives. So again, I think that the failure might be a structural yeah, one.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, Matt, thank you so much thank for you. coming up and telling that beautiful story. We really appreciate
0: it.
1: So, it's time for another spiritual practice. It's Florilegia. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> I love that they're like celebrities. It's like Kim Kardashian and Flora Legia are here. (laughs) So um, for those of you who might be new, Flora Legia is, um, again, uh, a monastic practice. Traditionally, you know, monks who might be copying texts might find one particular line, especially in the Psalms that really spoke to them or on reading, something really stood out, what we like to call a sparklet. And so it might look a lot like kind of quotation collections that people put together these days. And the the fun practice is to put two different sparklets uh, or more from different parts of the text together and to see if there's something new that can be revealed in the meaning when we, when we put them in conversation with one another. Vanessa, I believe you and I chose little sparklets in preparation, and we don't yet know what the other ones is. Nope. Um, So I'll say mine out loud, and Ariana's going to write it in. So the phrase that stood out to me from this chapter was, can you tell Katie and Alicia? Hmm. What about yours?
2: I'm not making prophecies.
1: So let's read them this way around first and see what we can find. I'm not making prophecies. Can you tell Katie and Alicia?
2: It's like, it's actually a really nice way to ask a favor. Like, I don't know what's in your future. I don't know what you're up to. Maybe you're on your way to the bathroom. Maybe, but, but can you tell Katie and Alicia? It's like a genuinely curious way to ask a favor. I don't know. What?
1: <laughs> Do better. Say more. <laughs>
2: <laughs> like... I'm not making pro- – like, if I were to say to you, like, yeah. I don't know you, I don't, right. but, like, can you do that? Yeah. That would be great. Thank right. you. Right. I don't mean to impose.
1: And you're asking for what you need, but you're also clear about the limits of what the other yeah. person can offer. Yeah.
2: I don't know the future, but can you? So thoughtful. That, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What about you? How did you read it?
1: Um, I'm not making prophecies. Can you tell Katie and Alicia? I mean, obviously, the word prophecies makes me think of Trelawney. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking, who actually says I'm not making prophecies? Harry
2: does. And Ron says, You sound like Trelawney right now.
1: Uh, and Harry
2: is like, I'm not making prophecies. I'm telling you what I experienced I, with Voldemort, Voldemort's moods, right? He's like, I'm mood reading.
1: Which is, so this is interesting. It's more, yeah. So he's talking about his experience of Voldemort, which most of the time he wants to keep really secret. And yet, put in this connection, he's asking for it to be spread. Mm. And so I'm just wondering, is there something in Harry's behavior which doesn't want you to know, but he wants you to know without him telling you? He wants everyone to understand his... Experience without going through this traumatizing event of having to tell it over and over and over again. And he actually ends up sharing more in the DA meeting than he had planned to. And he's both annoyed by it and satisfied by it. And so there's something in this chapter of him wanting his experience to travel further without him doing the telling that seems to come out in these two lines.
0: Interesting. Maybe. Yeah. Should we ask someone from the audience for a sparklet? Yes.
1: Oh, we're going to add a third one. Yeah. Oh, the excitement. Um, Did anyone have a sparklet that they brought with them? Yes, we have one over here on the left. Yes. You do sound just like my mother. You do just sound like my mother. Amazing. (laughs) Okay, great. (laughs) Okay. All right. Um, So I'm going to read all three, and you're going to find something juicy. Okay.
2: An equal division of labor.
1: (laughs) Can you tell Katie and Alicia, I'm not making prophecies. You do just sound like my mother.
2: Can you read it one more time?
1: Can you tell Katie and Alicia, I'm not making prophecies. You do sound just like my mother.
2: Good. Something occurred to you. Thank God. Go.
1: Does Trelawney have a secret child? (laughs) She's the type to have had a tempestuous young love affair. And then the, like, social services were like, inappropriate, no,
2: take the child. I, I keep wanting to exchange... I validate what you just said. Also, um, I... Sorry, let me try a Casper phrase. I loved that. Um... I keep wanting to replace the word prophecies with promises, um, because, right, a promise is an attempt to, like, prophesize your own future actions, and so it's like, can you tell Katie and Alicia I'm not making any promises? So I know that in the context of the book that you do sound just like my mother is supposed to be an insult. But my mom is here, so I'm going to pretend it's a compliment. And it's, you sound just like my mother, which makes me want to promise something, right? Like, I mean, we see this, right? We see this in the books that, like, prophecies become more likely to become true if you tell people about them. Voldemort finds out about the prophecy and then makes it about Harry. Um, So it feels like, let's make this a public thing, this prophecy. I don't know. That's the best I could do. I like that. I've got I, something. Oh. You have
0: something, Caspar?
2: Well, okay. I'm just, Go can ahead. I?
1: Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the thing that's striking me is that I'm not making prophecies, is in Harry's voice. And what if we read that last line in Harry's voice? You sound just like my mother. He, we've been playing with this imagery of going and returning back. And we've known that he, at this point, he's seen he's seen Lily, right? The Mirror of said Lily's going to be present with him again. But as more of these memories are coming back to him, and especially since Sirius is on the scene, right? And he got that scrapbook from Hagrid. Like, more and more of his own family is coming back to him. And so just how a phrase like that, which, as you say, usually is used in a derogatory way, for Harry would be the greatest compliment. And I don't know why, but I'm suddenly feeling that like Luna in some way has that, I would say pastoral, like that caring, like just present loving witness to Harry in a way that you would want from a mother, right? Like she doesn't ridicule him for seeing the Thestrals. Like there's something, I don't know. I just imagine what if he said that to Luna, you know?
0: Luna's the best.
1: What about you, Ryan?
0: Yeah, the meaning I made from it was a lot more abstract. I was thinking about the word mother and prophecies together and thinking about how so much of what my mother does is like hope for my future, right? When, you know, it's like make good choices whenever I'm leaving the car or like <laughs> why don't you go to law school, you know? <laughs> Everything is about like this deep desire in her that I be good and okay and successful in my future and she doesn't have any control over that. Like I'm an adult, but it's what she deeply wants. And so I, I guess I'm... St- seeing can you tell Katie and Alicia is like it's a letting go it's like you have agency in the world like can you go do this thing um but like still with this this deep desire for well-being and like the loss of letting something go but the knowledge that you have to
2: which is what Hermione is doing by saying can you tell
0: Katie and Alicia right
2: like she is handing
0: over a lot of power in that moment I think Harry says that Harry to Angelina Johnson yeah
2: okay Still. Yeah. It's your still Yeah, Pounds. still. Yeah, yeah so no, no, no. no, no. no, no, no. Yeah. But.
0: This
1: is one of the secrets that you'll realize. Ariana in the studio will make like a really insightful point, And then usually I'm like, can I steal that? No,
0: it, <laughs> sacredness comes out of conversation.
1: Correct.
0: <laughs> so it's not stealing. It's our, us generating together.
1: That's a beautiful way of reading it. <laughs> we thank, don't deserve her. Thank you, everyone, <laughs> for joining us in our Floralegia. Legend. <laughs> Friends, we're coming towards the end of the show and I'm so grateful to all of you for standing. You are amazing. So uh, I'm going to invite you for the final time to turn to to a person next to you and share a blessing for someone in the pages of this book or any of the Harry Potter characters or really anyone at all um, because we don't get to bless each other enough, I believe, in this life. So just turn to someone, perhaps someone you've spoken to already and share a blessing and we'll come right back after that. Okay, everyone. Thank you so much. So, we have some blessings also, and I think, Jeff, would you be willing to go first? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to bless Filch, because I think that Filch is someone who's lacking in the two forms of currency that matter in the HP, HP, in the HP universe, which is status and magical skills, right? And so, I want to bless Filch because um, I think being a henchman is kind of a hard Job, and I want to bless him not in spite of being a henchman, but specifically because of that. Is this a reference to you not having a microphone? <laughs> uh, Definitely, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. <What? laughs> oh, Rebellion man, noted.
0: <laughs> um, I want to bless Marietta in kind of the the line of blessing people who seem a little bit um, like the antagonists in these chapters. Marietta shows up to the DA with Cho, kind of in protest, but because, I think because she loves Cho, because she wants to be there for her friend, and she doesn't hide the fact that she doesn't want to be there, which I think is another example of, like, how good friends they are. She's like, I'm not going to pretend to have fun, like, we know each other, you know I'm not having fun, Um, but I'm here and I'm here with you. And and that's, I think, a beautiful female friendship in the text that doesn't get acknowledged. And also in Casper's kind of pattern of queer reading of the text, I wonder if Marietta has a crush on Cho. And that's why she's so upset every time Harry comes around and they start flirting. Because she's like, oh, I'm the one who's here. I'm the one who really knows her. Anyway, that's what I think. (laughs) Oh...
1: That makes so much sense. That that's why she would go and tell Umbridge as well, because she's like, "Let me get that boy out of your hair, <laughs> back to me." <laughs> we haven't talked about Cho at all. Oh, she's so fabulous, Vanessa. How about you?
2: I'm about to bless Cho. Oh, so <laughs> I'm gonna bless this like great feminist trifecta of leadership of Cho, Hermione, and Ginny like, modeling collaboration and, like, yes and brainstorming of, like, we should be called this. Ooh, I love the DA part, but what if it stands for Dumbledore's army instead? Yes. And if only there were no men and this is how the world (laughs) works. I just think, like, uh, this is it.
1: But then who would be your leader?
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know, we'd figure it out. Um, So I want to bless Ginny, Cho, and Hermione for, like, Total cross house, cross year, just like quick brainstorming, decision making, getting things done. Love it. That's my blessing. What about you, Casper?
1: I want to bless Dobby. I feel like I mean, we learn so much about Dobby that he's been waiting like every night, hoping that he might see Harry. He volunteered to go and get. It's his head advent. It's his it's advent. He's always advent. waiting. Oh, Dobby is advent symbol. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but like also that he, you know, he's cleaning the whole Gryffindor common room and he's like, he's just taking it on. And so I'm just imagining all the other secret hidden ways in which Dobby is seeking to help Harry that we never even get to see. Yeah. As my husband teaches me, one way to love someone is to do acts of service for them. Does not come naturally to me, but I am trying. But like that, that is such an expression of love for Dobby. And so I just want to bless him for his enduring faithfulness. Um, to, to find ways to support Harry. So, my blessing is for Dobby.
2: Yeah. And um, on behalf of the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team, we would also like to offer a blessing to all of you. Casper and I made a commitment three plus years ago now that we would meet on Wednesday nights from 7 to 8.30 and treat Harry Potter as if it was a sacred text and we filled out this very long document about it and one of the things that we wrote down was that even if nobody comes we are excited to do this and we will do it for an entire year and we obviously never could have imagined that you all would be here one day and so we just want to offer a blessing to you because you are a blessing to us and so thank you from the bottom of our hearts for making this what it is so thank,
1: thank you so much thank you So, friends, we we have come to the end of our show. I want to remind you to tip your weight staff, um, to thank the amazing staff here at the Oberon, especially Emma for organizing everything and inviting us here. Um, I want to thank uh, Matt Potts, of course, our beloved teacher and special guest. Jeff Entman for all the music Danny Agin to help with everything Julia Auggie, Vanessa's mum, Stephanie Paulsell and uh, after you've said hello to us here we do have to finish about 9.15 so it'll be quick meet and greet but you can find us by the merch stand uh, we'll see you in a moment but for now thank you so much thank you for coming, I'm Casper Tocqueil
0: I'm Vanessa Zoltan I'm Arianna Nettleman and this is Harry Potter the Secret of the Sacred Text the Show Thank you
3: Vanessa, what's your favorite Taylor Swift album?
2: Folklore. What's your favorite Taylor Swift album? Evermore. Ooh, so close to being right, but wrong.
3: Now, see, I was taking a completely different interpretation of our favorite albums because we're in the same era, uh-huh. but we have different favorites. It's, I think it's why we have such great conversations, because we have similar sympathies and tastes, but we there's enough difference to make it interesting. I don't know why it has to be about winning and losing.
2: You're right, Matt. It's me. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me. <sighs> Matt, I do feel like there are some listeners who just heard that and were like, I think that Matt and Vanessa are talking in a secret code. But the rest of you are Swifties. And for you, we have an incredible pilgrimage coming up with Margaret H. Wilson. I am also going and your wife, Colette Potts, is also going because you could try to keep us away from a Taylor Swift pilgrimage, but you would fail. This is going to be on Cape Cod at this beautiful place called Auto Camp. And so we are going to go to this beautiful landscape and talk both about folklore and Evermore because they are complimentary albums. And we're going to reflect on questions like, what does thinking about my life as a story allow me to see in a different way? Or do I have stories or memories that might be easier to share in a fictional framework? And what fables do I wish existed to guide me right now? So if you love close reading, if you love Taylor Swift, if you would love to go on a pilgrimage, you should come and look into this. Go to readingandwalkingwith.com to claim one of our very few remaining spots on this great trip today. That's
0: readingandwalkingwith.com.